In these days of quarantine, I have been giving a lot of thought to personal evangelism. If you're a believer, I've got a question for you. Don't you want to be wildly lavish with the gospel? Aren't you tired of being stingy with it? Don't you want to be unfettered and free in your personal proclamation of Jesus Christ to the unbelieving folks around you? If you are in Christ, I know you want that. The reason I know you want that is because if you belong to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit living inside you. This is what Jesus says in John 15, 26, and 27. He says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, you'll have to forgive the unworthy analogy, but don't you remember in the first Alien movie when the thing was in that guy's stomach literally bursting to come out? I told you it was unworthy. Okay, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, lives on the interior of your life. If you are united to Christ by grace through faith in him, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And Jesus is anything but unclear in John 15, 26. The Holy Spirit of truth, he will bear witness about me. So if you belong to Jesus, you have this person acting powerfully upon you and in you in order that you would testify about Christ. And Jesus even assures us in John 15, 27, you also will bear witness because you have been with me. That's so encouraging. You will. It's going to happen. If you know Jesus, you want to make much of him with your words, to, to bear verbal witness to the power of the gospel in your life, in the lives of those who do not yet know him. So what's the hitch? If John 15, 26 and 27 is true of us, and if we know Christ, it is true of us, what's our major malfunction? And at this point, let's, let's not say it's because evangelism is not our gift. It doesn't matter if it's not our gift. What I'm wondering is why it's not our joy. So far as I can tell, the only appreciable difference between a believer who has the gift of evangelism and a believer who does the work of evangelism might be the raw number of people you have the privilege to lead to faith in Christ. Now, that part is in God's hands. Salvation's of the Lord. Repentance and faith are granted only by God. We don't cause new birth, but we do plant seeds. We water them. And my question is, why so sparingly? If you'd like the answer to that question, I invite you at this time to turn in your Bible to John chapter 12, beginning in verse 41. The fourth gospel, John's gospel, chapter 12 beginning in verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. 
For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. When it comes to evangelistic intensity, glory isn't just part of the problem. It's also at the heart of the solution. I want to take this podcast and the next one to unpack that statement. Here's here's the main idea, I think, behind verses 42 and 43. I'll put it this way. To the degree that we are seeking others' glory, we will not be speaking to them of Christ's story. To the degree that we are seeking others' glory, we will not be speaking to them of Christ's story. So this week and next, let's move from plight to solution, from disease to cure. In order to do that, what we're going to do actually is start in verses 42 and 43. Because the answer is in John 12, 41. That's, that's next week. The logic of these two verses, John 12, 42 and 43, is, is airtight and it is relentless. If you've ever wondered why your, your private profession of faith in Christ fails to eventuate in a public confession of Christ, this passage will serve you. Now, this isn't the only reason that we fail to get the word out, but it's a, it's a significant one. Let's begin by examining the first half of verse 42. John 12, 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but. Now let's hold it up right there. Uh, You know that whatever comes next isn't going to be good. They believed in him, but. (laughs) That's called, by the way, in the world of grammar, that's called a contrasting coordinating conjunction. Okay. In this case, it spells very bad news. For example, like the dentist tells you at your next checkup, well, everything looks good to me, but... And at that point, you want to say, no, 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 but, no, but. (laughs) If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, this is not an uncommon phenomenon. Uh, Faith in John's Gospel is always worthy of a second look. It, It says they believe, but do they? The way that you think they do? In what sense? What sort of faith is this? The stated purpose of the Gospel of John is found in John 20, 31, where he writes, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see this over and over as you study John's Gospel. That you may believe, that you may have faith. That's the stated purpose of John's gospel. So we might ask the question, what is belief? What's faith? And my definition of faith is that faith is trust in Jesus that transforms you. That's what I think John's gospel tells us faith is. Faith is trust in Christ that transforms you. Belief or faith is trust in Jesus that transforms you. And these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Life in Jesus' name is the very reason that he came. Genuine belief, true faith, begets life, transforming life. So is that what we have in John 12, 42? Or to make it real personal, is that what's in your heart today? Well, let's see. Here's the whole verse. 
Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. Now, fear of man is clearly in the driver's seat here. I trust you see that. We know what this is like. That's not profound news to us in any sense. Fear of man cripples our public confession of faith in Jesus, and it has immediate application to evangelism. We know that fear not is the most frequent command of the Bible. We know that God gave us a spirit not of fear, but we can go further. John 12.42 doesn't end here. Verse 42 goes on to give a reason beneath the fear. And this is why we need the Bible, friends. To cite fear or worry or anxiety as the ultimate diagnosis of a problem is just to begin skimming the surface of what's wrong. The word anxiety may be a popular diagnosis, but it's an awfully shallow one at the end of the day. Anxious about what is the appropriate question. More importantly, why? This is why we need the psychology of the Bible. We need a divine diagnosis that depends and descends down to the heart of the matter. The Bible is an x-ray for your soul. We know that fear of man keeps us from confessing Christ and sharing a a verbal witness with unbelievers around us. But why? What's below that? What's beneath that? Verse 42 tells us, Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. You ready? So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Not only do we see the word but in verse 42, that ought to determine the way that we read this, but we also have a so that. The but is important, but the so that is really important. It displays purpose. Evidently, these folks believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and I think we should take that at face value. They thought that Jesus was the Christ. At the same time, they also enjoyed their polite, social, relational sphere. The believers in verse 42 were convinced that Jesus was the Christ, but they also didn't want their faith to become too disruptive of their friendships in the community. Verse 42 refers to the synagogue. Now, while this would certainly have been inclusive of their religious connections, the first century Jewish synagogue enveloped every aspect of social life. If you had to leave the synagogue in the first century, it wouldn't be just like leaving one church today to go to the church across the street. Uh, Leaving one set of relationships in the community only to immerse yourself in another set of relationships. The synagogue wasn't merely your religious center. It was your entire relational world. For a 21st century analogy, to be put out of the synagogue in our context would be to shut, be shut out of every meaningful relationship that you know. Neighborhood, school, social media, workplace, marketplace, even family. Would you be pre- prepared for this? <laughs> Actually, this is to just the question. Are you prepared? For this. Years ago, I I heard a pastor tell a story that always struck me um, because it's so real. Uh, Two men, colleagues at work, were talking over lunch, and it turns out they're both believers, uh, both profess faith in Christ. Though one of them is known as a Christian, 
uh, among those whom they work. The other one wasn't. Well, the, the private Christ follower was so good at what he was doing. The other guy didn't even know he was a believer. They'd known each other for years. And then it comes out over lunch that this guy actually professes faith in Christ too. Well, on one level, uh, the other co-worker was just really, really happy to know another believer at work. But on another level, uh, it so baffled him that he said to his friend, you know, I had no idea that you were a believer. And I'm, I'm glad to hear of your faith in Christ, but I, I didn't know you were a Christian. And the other guy says back to him, oh, yeah, well, I- I'm a cool Christian. You know, I, I keep it on the down low. <laughs> and the Christ follower replies to him, a cool Christian, huh? You know, there's a word for that. And the other guy says, what is it? And he replies to him, it's hypocrite. <laughs> That's a true story. Uh, the cool Christian's name was Mark Middleberg. Uh, Mark went on to confess Christ publicly and eventually became, and still is today, a, a Christian leader and a church staff member and a, and a significant author. Well, the believers in John 12, 42 might not have known much about following Jesus, but it seems to me that they probably had a handle on this much. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. They knew it. Privately, they believed in Jesus. Publicly, well, they simply wouldn't confess it. And why? Because the relational cost was just too high a price to pay. They would be put out of the synagogue. And the synagogue, their, their web of relationships, their community network, was more precious to them than the proclamation of the name of their Messiah. Is this the life that John speaks of in John 20, 31, that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name? Does their faith reflect abundant life, the abundant life Jesus speaks of in John 10, 10? Verse 42 says they believe in Jesus. They know the truth about him. But Jesus says in John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Well, are these people free? They're not free. They're slaves. How about you? You believe in Jesus today? You belong to him? You own him privately, perhaps. You may even own him semi-publicly. Remember back when we used to gather for worship gatherings on Sunday mornings? (laughs) Well, how about the relational equivalent to the first century synagogue, the 21st century neighborhood? or your apartment hallway, or your workplace, or your school, or Caribou, or Scotty B's, or social functions, or extended family get-togethers? Are you prepared to be put out of that 21st century synagogue? Now, in case you think we've, we've reached the root level motivation of the human heart here, we have not yet descended as low as this passage plummets. Verse 42 is deep, but verse 43 is deeper. Fear drives the human heart. Agreed. Fear flares up in our flesh because it reminds us of the cost of relational alienation. But why are we so slow to risk relational alienation? That may seem like an obvious question, but I don't think it's one we ask enough. And I'd like to think about it for a moment. What was it for these folks in verse 43? Verse 43 begins with a four. The four here gives 
cause. It's the motive behind the motive that cuts the nerve of evangelistic witness. You ready? Verse 43. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And that is the root. It's ugly, isn't it? The word for for glory here is the same word for praise. They loved the praise that comes from man more than the praise that comes from God. Notice that when you put it that way, these people loved tasting something of which only God himself is worthy. Just who is worthy of the glory, the praise that comes from man? Certainly not other men. And yet this is precisely what they loved. These believers, and I'm going to put air quotes around them at this point, these believers loved respectability. They loved pleasing people, or at least being thought of in a pleasing way by people. To quote an old Peter Gabriel song, they loved to be loved. J.C. Ryle, 19th century Bishop of Liverpool, looked at this text and said, quote, We may learn from these verses the amazing power which the love of the world has over men, to keep in with them and have their praise. They sacrificed their own convictions. They acted contrary to their conscience. There are thousands of people who go on from year to year, secretly ill at ease and dissatisfied with themselves, knowing too much of religion to be happy in the world and clinging too much to the world to enjoy religion. I'm going to read that last sentence because I think it's so powerful. Knowing too much of religion to be happy in the world and clinging too much to the world to enjoy any religion. End quote. J.C. Ryle wrote that in the year 1869. His observation is true to life, isn't it? If you're living like this, you are miserable. You've tasted the goodness of the word of God, of Christ, his people. The world doesn't shimmer with all the same promise it once did to you. And yet, you're so steeped in pockets of the world. You're clinging to the world that you you and your your hunger for God isn't really all that great either. You profess faith in Christ. You you perhaps are part of a, a community group or you um, identify with a local church. You may even put something in the offering plate when it passes by, or in this case, mail it to the church building. But when it comes to opening your mouth to say a good word for Jesus to those around you who don't know him, You can't. You don't. You won't. Scan over verses 42 to 43 once more. Is this saving faith? Are these folks really believers? Well, if they are, they're of a most miserable sort. Wouldn't you agree? You know, there's a parallel passage to this one several chapters earlier in John's gospel. John chapter 5, verse 44. In John 5, 44, Jesus says to the religious leaders, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? 
How can you believe? You hear how incredulous Jesus is here in John 5.44? This may not even be saving faith. And if it's not saving faith, I can guarantee you something else. It's not evangelistic faith either. Well, this is convicting stuff, isn't it? I mean, it is for me. You know, there's good news coming. We'll see the good news next week in verse 41. But we need to break off right now, and we need the gospel today. What's the gospel today? What's the gospel for believers here in verses 42 and 43? I can think of two ways to get to the good news. The first line of good news is that these authorities spoken of in verse 42 probably, although maybe not conclusively, but probably included men like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And these guys are on their journey. By the end of John's gospel, these two men are the ones who take responsibility for the the physical body of the Lord Jesus after his death and provide for him the linens and the tomb out of Joseph's own expense. So that's encouraging. At least two of the authorities come to own Jesus publicly, even if it was after his death. Well, what else might encourage us here as Christians? as Christians struggling to bear witness to our crucified and risen Savior. Well, there's a verse tucked away in Leviticus that I like to remember in moments like this one. It's Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1. Believe it or not, Leviticus 5, 1 is a reminder that there is a sacrifice of atonement available even for those who fail to testify to it. Leviticus 5, 1. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Leviticus 5.1. Now, Leviticus 5.5-6 goes on to say, when he realizes his guilt and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. These verses speak of the suppression of testimony. Presumably in legal matters within the nation of Israel, God's ancient covenant people. Withholding evidence is a grave matter to God. It is today in our culture as well. We call it obstructing justice. In Israel, those who did so were guilty, and cleansing and forgiveness could only be sought and found through a blood sacrifice. Do you smell the gospel yet? The Lord Jesus Christ in the Great Commission gave to us the greatest public adjuration to testify, to use the words of Leviticus 5.1, the greatest public adjuration to testify of all time. We who are believers are witnesses as Peter says, though we have not seen him, we love him.
We have come to know the matter of his life and suffering, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and soon return. Yet so very often we do not speak the gospel to unbelievers. It's suppression of testimony. It's withholding evidence. Not to evangelize is the essence of the obstruction of justice. In fact, it's worse than obstruction of justice because it's obstruction of grace. Not to speak of the risen Lord Jesus in the presence of those who do not know him is to incur guilt. And yet, through the gospel, he brings us to the foot of the cross where cleansing and forgiveness can be sought and found through his blood sacrifice of atonement. It's staggering to think that Jesus went to Calvary in part because we would fail to speak of him. Christ have mercy. And Christ, of course, has mercy. Now remember where we started at the beginning of today's podcast. When it comes to evangelistic intensity, glory isn't just part of the problem. It's also at the heart of the solution. So to the degree that we are seeking others' glory, we will not be speaking to them of Christ's story. And if we've been able to see our way to the good news through the bad news this week, (laughs) just think of the encouragement that's in store for us next week as we look at the second truth. And I'll, I'll encourage us with that truth as we close. It's just a way of inverting the first truth. And here it is. To the degree that we are seeing Christ's glory, we cannot help but be speaking to others about his story. We'll tackle that next week. Amen. Grace and peace, friends.